Now listen to them saying, there's no recounting of their suffering, no recounting of their beheading, no account, recounting of the horror that they knew as tribulation saints, not one word of complaint. They're singing about Jesus. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching program of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. Our nation and the entire world are experiencing an unprecedented time of turmoil, including the COVID pandemic, the violent protests in various cities, and a general turning away from God. But these days pale by comparison to what's promised yet to come during the time of the tribulation. We've been studying the revelation for the past several months, and we've looked so far at two sets of judgments that are outlined in the prophetic portion of this book. These judgments, the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, take place and then are followed by a series of events leading up to seven bowl judgments, which we'll begin a look at next week. But today, from chapter 15, Dr. Brogy introduces us to seven angels who will be delivering these bold judgments. Let's begin now in verse 1. Now we come to the third sign, and John immediately tells us it's a sign in heaven. And he specifically tells us what it is, seven angels who had the seven plagues. Now, he uses three words in this verse to describe the nature of these plagues. And as you read the two chapters, you discover that the word plague and bowl, or some of your translations say vile, is used interchangeably, all right? So when he's talking about the plagues, he's talking about the seven bowls of wrath. And you see that when you read the two chapters. You might want to circle these words first. He refers to this sign as great. Why? Because it's awesome in power. Contained in this sign is going to make your spine tingle next time. I mean, it's incredible. Second, this sign is called marvelous. Why would you call this expression of wrath marvelous? Because as we will see, the saints of God are going to be vindicated. These people who have been slaughtered and marked and made fun of and beheaded are going to be vindicated as real servants of God, and that's marvelous. And third, he refers to this sign as the last of seven plagues because he tells us that in them the wrath of God is finished. When these last seven bulls are executed on the earth, this is the end of the wrath of God on the earth, and it will usher in the second coming of the Lord Jesus. So this is a promise that God is making, and it says the wrath of God is completed. Now, that's an important word, completed. It's a term that was used in a lot of different ways in the first century, really in everyday life. A servant would say, I have completed the work you've given me to do. He would say that to his employer or to his master if he was a slave. It meant he had finished what he had been asked to do. The Lord Jesus uses the same word, teleo, in his high priestly prayer. I glorified you by completing the work that you gave me to do. When he said that, he had finished the work. He had fulfilled the laws, commands, and the prophecies concerning him. He had completed it. The most common expression, however, of this verb teleo was used in the first century by merchants, and it was used of someone who had paid a bill. If you go to Israel, one museum you can visit is the Rockefeller Museum. 
the Rockefellers built an incredible place there. We haven't been there in our last few trips, but I think we should go again. And on it, in that museum, is a uh, several pieces of papyri with lists of names. And when the tax was paid, these papyri that were discovered in 1961, they're in the city of Jerusalem. They wrote this verb, teleo. It's the very verb that Jesus shouts from the cross when he says, tetelestai. It's the same verb, just in a different form. It means literally, it is finished. It's completed. All the wrath that you deserve, Christ has completed on your behalf forever and ever and ever. He is paid in full. And that's important. And if you don't hear anything else this morning, understand that the Lord Jesus paid in full the wrath that you and I deserve, completed it, and you can add absolutely nothing to it. The Net Bible interestingly renders the Greek this way. They paraphrase a little bit, but it's a decent translation. Some of my friends at Dallas Seminary put it together some years back. Then I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven, seven angels who have seven final plagues. They are final because in them God's anger is completed. By the way, let me say parenthetically that God never ever uses this verb teleo in reference to his eternal wrath because the eternal wrath of God will never burn out. And unless you embrace the infinite son who in a finite period of time bore your wrath and you as a finite person will spend an infinite amount of time paying for your own sin in an awful place God doesn't want any of us to go to. So during this seven-year period, known as the Great Tribulation, these last seven bowls represent a turning point. It's a prophetic pivot of sorts because what is going to happen at the end of it is Jesus is going to come back and the promises that he made to Israel and to the church will be fulfilled. He will literally rule and reign. What we've been praying for, for, for a couple of thousand years, Lord, your will be done on earth, literally, as it's being done in heaven. That's a prayer for the coming kingdom, among other things. So we're introduced to this third sign consisting of seven angels who had the seven plagues that are filled with the wrath of God. We're told in verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast in his image and the number of his name standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. Now, if you remember, we were introduced to this sea of glass back in chapter 4. Let me dust off your minds with chapter 4, verse 6. We're told, out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. It's a description of the throne of God the Father, if you remember. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. So this is another place where I suppose human vocabulary is not adequate. And he's describing this shimmering, beautiful, magnificent sea of glass. And it's magnificent. It's like crystal. If you remember, I noted for you back there in chapter 4 that every good architect has a way of doing that, doesn't he? If he's building really a magnificent building, he'll often put a big reflecting pond out in front of it to capture the beauty of the building and even to light it up at night. Well, Moses once had a vision of the throne of God in Exodus 24, and he described it, note, as a pavement of sapphire as clear as the sky itself. 
Ezekiel is given a glimpse of the throne, and he says it's something like an expanse, like the awesome gleam of crystal. So this is not some small reflecting pond. It is a sea of glass, and it's magnificent, and it's going to take our breath away, I'm sure. But notice here in verse 2, John adds another description to the sea of glass that we don't find in chapter 4, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, you know that fire is often associated in the Bible with God's righteous judgment. In Hebrews 10.27, it refers there to the terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Likewise, in one of the God is verses in the Bible, in Hebrews 12.29, it says, God is a consuming fire. So God's judgment the worst this world has ever seen is about to unfold from this place, a sea of glass mixed with fire. And it is a terrifying description of the righteousness of God Almighty. Again, we read, I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name. Now, you know who those are by now. Those are the tribulation saints, because those are the only people who during this period of time will meet these three specific issues. Now, you know the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. So let's just review for a moment what is meant by these three descriptions. He mentions here first the beast. Who's the beast in one word? Antichrist. Antichrist. The beast is the Antichrist. Now, the dragon is Satan. The beast is Antichrist. Uh, that's the principal designation. Now, there is a second beast who's also in reference to the false prophet, but most all the references to the beast is the Antichrist. Then, if you will notice here, he mentions his image, and we were introduced to that image back in chapter 13. Remember the false prophet and what he did. We're told in Revelation uh, 13, verse 14, and he, the false prophet, deceives those who dwell on the earth because of the signs which it was given him to perform in the presence of the beast. And then this deceiver, we're told in the next verse, and it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast could even speak and cause as many as who do not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So there in the city of Jerusalem, the Antichrist in a third temple yet to be built. Some of you went with me to the Temple Institute in our last trip. We saw all of the blueprints for the third temple. All the architectural drawings are completed. Every stitch of furniture has been made with the exception of the Ark of the Covenant because there are credible Jewish Orthodox rabbis who say they know precisely where that Ark is located. Now, there's one in heaven, but there's one on the earth, and they said that they've seen it, and that's why they haven't reproduced the ark. The only thing that, they have all the temple garments made out there in the fields outside of Jerusalem. Many of you have followed on Fox News. You have these uh, Levitical priests who are actually practicing the sacrificial, sacrificial system. They are going to build another temple, and it has to be built by the midpoint of this seven-year period because that's when the Antichrist is going to go in there, and he's going to do something that's going to trigger in every Jewish person's mind that he is not the Jewish Messiah they thought. 
that he is a false Messiah, that he is an anti-Messiah, an anti-Christ, because he would never do anything that would contradict God's revealed Word. And that's what Moses reminded people of throughout the Torah, that as some prophet or teacher comes along, because one office of Messiah is that he would be a prophet. Prophet, priest, and king. The three offices contain only in one person, Jesus, but they will know he's a false prophet because he's going to do something that is contrary to what God had revealed. When that false prophet makes an image of the Antichrist speak, he is going to engage in idolatry. And every Jew will know at that point, it's impossible that this man could be God's man. Again, they're victorious in three realms, over the beast, the Antichrist, over the image They don't worship it, and also over the number of his name. Remember the number of his name. Revelation 13, verse 18. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. We spoke a little bit about gematria, that in a number of languages, including Hebrew and Greek, every single letter has a numerical equivalent. The Bible teaches that when you take the name of the Antichrist, whoever he is, and you sum up his name, it will add up to 666. And these people, these tribulation saints, refuse to follow the Antichrist. They refuse to worship at an image, and they refuse to take the number of the beast, 666, on their right hand or on their forehead. Fast forward right out in the margin next to verse 2, Revelation 20, verse 4. Let me read it to you. I think if I, I've not checked it, but I think it's the longest verse in all the Revelation. Then I saw, so I didn't make a slide for it. It was too long to fit on a slide. Then I saw that you could read. Then I saw thrones. And they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who have been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast, there it is, or his image, there it is, and had not received the mark on their forehead or on their right hand, those three, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So they're alive in heaven. Their bodies are, of course, yet to be resurrected. So putting these three reasons together, let me read verse 2 again. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding hearts of God. Now, from the world's perspective, these people are losers. They had their heads cut off. But from heaven's perspective, they are victorious. And here they are in heaven. They are with harps of God that God the Father has given to them. They're holding harps of God that God the Father has given to them. And again, it's in the context of a sea of glass. God's boiling anger, as we'll see in just a moment, is ready to let go. But these people are not fearful. They're not feigning. They are standing victorious. Really, the only people who need to fear are the unbelieving multitudes on the earth. Jesus said it this way, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. And so these victorious saints in heaven are singing the praise of God. Now that's the vision of judgment. 
Now the vision shifts, and it gives us a second dimension of this vision that John has given, where we see a vision of jubilation, a vision of jubilation. We read now in verse 3, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. You say, Pastor, what is the song of Moses? Is, is that in the top 40? You better believe it. It's been in the top 40 for 3,500 years. Right out in the margin next to that verse, Exodus 15. You can go home and read the whole chapter, but let me just give you a sampling from the song of Moses. The context was the time that the Israelites were brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea, and on the other side of the Red Sea, when all of Pharaoh's army is drowned, they sing the song of Moses. The Lord is my strength in song. Notice all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, telling you in the preface of the New American Standard that this is the special covenant name of God, Yahweh. The Lord is my strength and song, and He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is His name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army He has cast into the sea, and the choicest of His officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deeps cover them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff. Listen, this song is stamped in the mind of every practicing Jew. In the Sabbat meal that we went to, and one of the things that we incorporated last time is everyone on the trip goes to a Sabbath meal in the home of an Orthodox Jew. In the home that we were in, we sang, because everyone also spoke English, we sang a portion of the Song of Moses. They've been singing it for 3,500 years. I called my rabbi friend this week, and I said, let me ask you a question. I said, do, do you sing this a lot? He said, it's actually incorporated on every Sabbath worship, and it's sung, he said, on almost every devotional that Jewish people sing every single day. And there are many contemporary songs and expressions where these words have been put to music. By the way, only redeemed people can sing a song of praise. Only their hearts can really express gratitude for what God has done. And of course, in Deuteronomy 18, that great chapter, Moses speaks of the prophet who is coming. Remember on that occasion in John's gospel, they asked Jesus, are you the prophet? In Acts 2, Peter says, he is the prophet. Jesus filled three offices, prophet, priest, and king. The Messiah would fill. And so in Deuteronomy 18, Moses gives the coming Messiah as, a, as the coming prophet, and the Antichrist becomes a type of a false prophet, of a false person. Now, it's not by accident that Moses in that song, it is sung as a result of the great deliverance God brought them out of. And if you remember in those 10 plagues, Many of the plagues representing Egyptian gods that they worshipped. They had a frog god, so God sent frogs and so on. And, but the tenth plague 
was the plague where God averted it by, on his people by slaughtering a lamb. And they put the blood on the doorposts. And when the destructive angel, and it was an angel, that's not fiction, came through, God bypassed, he passed over anyone who in faith applied the blood. And the firstborn in that home, whether you were 100 years old and firstborn or three days old, you were passed over male and female alike. Now go back to the previous slide. They sang the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. They sang them both. And how appropriate, because there's great parallels between those two songs, as this next chart shows you. The song of Moses, again, Exodus 15. The song of the Lamb, Revelation 15. One is sung at the sea. The other is sung at the crystal sea. The first represents the triumph over Egypt. The second, the triumph over the Antichrist. The first, God is bringing his people out. And the second song, God is bringing them into heaven. The first song recorded in all of the Bible is found in Exodus 15. The last song, the song of the Lamb, recorded in the Bible is found here in Revelation 15. So it's appropriate that God's people would sing this in heaven because these are people who triumphed over the beast, his image, and over his number. And while the words are not the same, the two songs are in perfect harmony with one another. In Moses' day, they recounted the great redemption that God brought them out through the blood of the Lamb. And in this day, they will once again sing of the great redemption in which God brought us out by what was pictured in the Old Testament by the blood of the Lord Jesus. Look again at verse 3. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and they sang the, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Now, please notice what they're really singing here. They're singing, How great thou art. When they say, great and marvelous are your works, O Lord, the Almighty. They're singing, in essence, how good you are. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. And they're singing, how glorious you are. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? It's a rhetorical question. For you alone are holy. Now, listen to them sing. There's no recounting of their suffering. No recounting of their beheading. No account, recounting of the horror that they knew as tribulation saints. Not one word of complaint. They're singing about Jesus. In fact, every pronoun has to do with God. Look at verses 3 and 4 together. Great and marvelous are your works. Circle that. Righteous and true are your ways. Circle that word, your. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, and your righteous acts have been revealed. Not one thread of narcissism, no self-centeredness, and this is all, it's all about the Lord. Your, your, you, your, you, you, your. They are focused on the living God. And that's what makes heaven so marvelous. It's not about us. It's about him. And you will notice if you're using the New American Standard, the typeset changes to all caps because in this instance, it's an Old Testament reference. Notice, for all the nations will, future tense, 
For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, you might want to put out in the margin Psalm 86 and Isaiah 66. Psalm 86 and Isaiah 66, because that's where these references come from. And they are prophecies of something that has never happened. I have told you that there are some dear brothers like John Piper and others who say, the book of Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, is all history. Oh, my, please. That is a terrible thing to say. But you see, they think God's done with the Jewish persons, that the Jew has no relevance anymore in the plans and purposes of God. Now, I love Piper, and I thank God he preaches the gospel. But it is a terrible thing to discredit the Jewish people in this new replacement theology that is surfacing like never before in America. And it's going to lead to an anti-Semitism. No one has that intention, but that's the fruit of this kind of thinking. When the church no longer respects the people of Israel and the plans and purposes that God has for them in bringing about the second coming of Jesus from heaven. And so if you go back to these Old Testament passages, God is speaking of a future time when all the nations will come to Jerusalem and worship. Is he blowing smoke? Not at all. Every single prophecy for the first coming was literally fulfilled, and so it will be for the second coming. That has never happened. And so to take the revelation and say it all happened before 70 AD is to abuse the plain teaching of the Word of God. Isaiah chapter 2, Micah chapter 4, Zechariah 14, speaks of this time when the nations will gather nations from every tribe, tongue, and people who are true and genuine believers, and they will worship there in Jerusalem. Now, that's the vision of jubilation. There's a vision of judgment. There's a vision of jubilation. But there's a third dimension to this vision that he is given here that he sees in heaven. And it concerns a vision of justice, a vision of justice. We now read beginning in verse 5. After these things I looked, and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. Now, we've already seen in chapters 5 and 6, if you remember, there's the golden altar and there's the brazen altar that are in heaven and not by accident because the temple furniture on earth actually exists in heaven. Remember, when Moses came down from that mountain, he not only had the Ten Commandments, so to speak, he had a set of blueprints. God had given him a vision of how to build the tabernacle. Some of you were with me on one trip, and we were down in the desert, and I didn't even know it was there, but we stumbled upon some Messianic Jewish believers who had rebuilt the, ta uh, the, the tabernacle, that tent structure. And I want to tell you, every thread, every color, every stick of furniture is symbolic, as will the later temple that they built be and was, is symbolic of what Messiah has done and will do. Tomorrow, when we conclude this message entitled, The Vision Before the Bulls, Dr. Brogy will look at the various patterns or typologies that are in the Bible that point to a future reality. To listen again to today's study, use the Search the Scriptures app for phones and tablets, or on your computer, visit us at searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program REV41. And when you call, be sure to ask for a free copy of Dr. Brogy's booklet and presentation entitled, Would You Like God as Your Friend? If you've never trusted Christ as Lord of your life, this presentation will explain five spiritual truths that will have an absolutely life-changing effect on you. And if you do know Christ, the presentation will help you better share your faith with others. Just call 877-787-7478 and ask for Would You Like God as Your Friend? Tomorrow, the conclusion of The Vision Before the Bulls. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.